Well, good morning. Hi, my name is Wes, one of the pastors here. Glad to be with you today and taking some time to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you got a Bible with you, if you would turn with me, Bible app, there's even a Bible in front of you under the seat. Turn to our passage today in Matthew 23, beginning at verse 25. When you found that, if you'd stand together with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Jesus says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's God's word. You may be seated. Dave has prayed for us in this time in God's words. So let's just dive right into it um, as we gather together to talk about this. Um, it's been said by countless sociologists, uh, journalists, um, basically many cultural commentators of the day, that we are living today in what they call an image-based culture. Have you heard this kind of terminology before? An image-based culture, by which they're referring primarily to the dominance of the picture, the photograph, the, the image, in the ways that we communicate as a society, as opposed to things like an oral-based culture or a text-based culture. It's not to say that there haven't been images and pictures used in other generations, but in particular, that's how we communicate in a lot of ways today. It's the dominant way we communicate. Um, I, it's a claim I doubt many of us would want to argue, uh, given the just dominance today of everything from like social media, live streaming, uh, powerful use of images everywhere in our advertising. It's just everywhere you look. As one writer put it in a recent article from the New Atlantis, she said, sight is our most powerful sense, much more dominant in translating experience than taste or touch or hearing. And images appeal to emotion, often viscerally so. They can persuade, repel, charm us. They claim our attention without uttering a word. But then, as she rightly goes on to warn, she says two things in particular are at stake in our contemporary confrontation with an image-based culture. First, technology has considerably undermined our ability to trust what we see, yet we have not yet adequately grappled with the side effects of this on our notions of truth. Isn't that the case uh, everywhere we're looking right now? Second, if we are indeed moving from an era of the printed word to an era dominated by the image, what impact will this have on culture and its, in and its institutions? Will we, in the age of the image, become too easily accustomed to verisimilar rather than true things, preferring appearance to reality, and in the process, rejecting the demands of discipline and patience that true things often require of us if we are to understand their meaning and describe it with precision. Some good correctives, I think. But of course, there's another, albeit related, sense in which we use that language of being an image-based culture, which has less to do with how we communicate about a product, per se, and more to do with how we communicate about ourselves to the world around us. 
or that is maybe just like the image of ourselves that we want people to have of us. Which, I mean, to be clear, uh, th- this is something in this second sense of the term, which I think is not at all unique to our world today. I mean, this has been part of our world since the beginning. And yet I'd say it's a problem that's, that's been just simply magnified by the introduction of things like social media. Because before, the image you wanted to present to someone, you only needed to worry about people you came into physical contact with. Whereas now, you have to, if you want to present this image, it's got to be presented and managed and curated for the entire world to see and and critique and evaluate. And it's a present-day reality that I don't think has served us very well. Um, As evidenced, just one example of this, maybe you read the Wall Street Journal whistleblower report back in 2021, which really highlighted the the widely known yet almost completely ignoring effects of an app like Instagram for teen and preteen girls in particular as it relates to positive body image, depression, anxiety. I mean, they they were saying that we we know this is causing detrimental effects here and they did nothing about it and are doing nothing about it. Which means, I mean, just thinking about that for a moment, I mean, as the women of tomorrow... (laughs) who are being shaped right now by this, we don't even know yet how the devastating effects of an image-based culture that we're experiencing right now are going to play out in generations to come. It's kind of terrifying to think of. But of course, there's another, along with that equally detrimental effect of an image-based society in this second sense of the term, and that is when someone spends so much time living the curated version of themselves to the world around them, that they lose the ability at some point in time to be able to distinguish between the curated version of themselves and who they truly are at the end of the day. It starts to become impossible to discern any longer which is the real one anymore. And I think that's where the caution from that article in the New Atlantis is particularly relevant as it relates to this other kind of sense of an image being an image-based culture where she talked about becoming accustomed to verisimilar rather than true things, preferring appearance to reality, because I think we can absolutely do this very same thing to ourselves personally, start to prefer the appearance rather than what's actually true, Uh, much more than we just do that for a product. We can start to do that for ourselves. And I happen to think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at in these two woes from our passage today over the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, if you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, as we've been in this kind of series within a series on Jesus' seven woes to the Pharisees, he's been calling out the Pharisees' hypocrisy the whole time. It's happening throughout. But here in particular, it seems now Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy, their They're stage acting where they're trying to present this image to everyone of being this inner righteousness, this inner closeness to God that's totally false. But he's doing it in a way that's very direct now, very unambiguous in the way he's calling it out. If you look there in verse 25, telling them how clean they look on the outside, yet truly filthy they still are on the inside. And then again, verse 28, how beautifully they present themselves to everyone around them while inside they are filled with lawlessness and full of defilement. And yet, I don't know if it's the same for you when you read this, but I think, I think about how Jesus' woes, when I'm trying to say, okay, how does that apply to the church today? 
when we think about Jesus speaking these same woes over us today, which I think I've been saying that throughout this series. I think there's absolutely a contemporary application to what Jesus is saying here to kingdom representatives in any generation. I find myself wondering this question. Just how self-conscious were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law about their hypocrisy? Like, did they know? Did they know the whole time? They're kind of like, yeah, no, that's not really the truth. Were they aware that the image they were presenting to everyone around them was false? Or was their hypocrisy more like the result of a million smaller, justifiable-in-the-moment decisions that over time just kind of built up into this totally being self-deceived, this believing they truly were who Jesus plainly reveals that they were not? Did they know? Because that's actually a lot more terrifying to me. Uh, than somebody who, who is pulling the wool over people's eyes but knows they're not actually who they're presenting themselves to the world, that person usually gets revealed, right? They usually get outed at some point, fine. But think about that. To do that without self-awareness, to get to that place where you're so self-deceived, I mean, because that could be you, that could be me, and we wouldn't even realize we were doing it. That's way more terrifying to me, actually. And that's really what I want to talk about today. So as we spend a few minutes here in this passage today, I really want to try to get underneath the surface, like what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the Pharisees, because as fellow hypocrites, like can we just be honest and say like we, we share that same kind of hypocrisy in our own lives, there's nobody here who, who lives perfectly according to even our standards of what we say is right and wrong, let alone what God says. So as fellow hypocrites, maybe learning to address and be aware of all the places that we know we're being hypocritical, then maybe we can avoid the far more dangerous place of being unconsciously so. That's what I want to spend some time focusing on today. And to help us do that, I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. We're going to talk about uh, the construct of hypocrisy and then the consequence of hypocrisy. Just those two things. The construct, like how do we build this thing together where we get to the place where we don't even realize we're being hypocrites anymore? And then what are the consequences of doing that? So if you have your Bibles still there, if you could open it again to this passage, if you closed it, Bible app, would you open it to the passage, follow along with me as we go through this, where Jesus, once again, he calls out the hypocrisy, the, the mask wearing of the religious rulers of his day, and then warns against misguided teachings that come about as a result of that hypocrisy. Okay, so let's first look first of all at the construct of hypocrisy. How does this get all put together? The construct of hypocrisy. Again, as I've been saying from the beginning of this series, the word hypocrite, the Greek hypocrites, uh, was not necessarily a negative word in Jesus' day. It was just a word that meant an actor on a stage playing a part or one who wears the mask. Wouldn't it be weird? Go to a play with your friends, be like, look at all those hypocrites up on the stage. And it just it made sense. That, that's what the word meant. But of course, if you're telling somebody that they're an actor, or they're just playing a part only when they don't know that, they don't believe that they're playing a part, that's what makes the term so offensive, uh, which is absolutely the case of what was going on with the Pharisees, teachers of the law, right? They didn't see themselves as actors pretending to be righteous. They saw themselves as the religious and moral exemplars of Israel. So they were highly offended by what Jesus had said here. But as you heard from the passage, 
that we just read. The reason Jesus applies this term, hypocrites, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is because he had an ability to see what was behind the mask, right? He had an ability to see behind or underneath the clean, whitewashed exterior they presented in a way that others, perhaps even the Pharisees themselves, could not. And thus, he's not denying the kind of squeaky clean, beautiful image being presented by the Pharisees on the outside through their strict obedience to the law. He says the reality, like underneath the hood, as it were, is a very different picture, a very different image that's presented there. And then in order to illustrate that, you see in verse 25 and 27, if you want to look there, Jesus uses these two images, the images of a cup and a plate that have been meticulously cleaned on the outside but are still quite filthy on the inside, and then a tomb marker that's been whitewashed and appears beautiful on the outside but obviously still holds death on the inside. I'm going to focus a bit more on that second picture in the second point and more on the cup and the dish here in this first point. But really, both images are trying to present this is the true reality of what's going on with the Pharisees. Presenting this clean image here on the inside, a very different image that's being presented. But when I think about and look at this a little more deeply and the details of this first image that Jesus uses, the cup and the dish, I think you see two things in particular as it relates to our awareness, or maybe recovering awareness of the ways in which we too can be hypocritical, maybe even to the point of being unconsciously so to ourselves. In the first, you see there are the dirty, muddy things Jesus says are filling the inside of the Pharisees, otherwise squeaky clean dishes on the outside. You see there in verse 25, he says, you are filled with greed and self-indulgence. Outside looks great, inside filled with greed and self-indulgence, which means while the Pharisees, they're presenting this pious picture, this picture of having the purest attentions on the outside, the heart motivations behind what they were doing was actually about hoarding wealth for themselves and indulging in their own selfish desires. That's really the motivation going on behind, whether or not they were aware of it or not. That's a reality that Jesus doesn't demonstrate here specifically in Matthew's listing of the woes that Jesus speaks, but with both, both Mark and Luke's Gospels, they, they do include. With an accusation that Jesus gives against the Pharisees, he talks about they devour widows' houses. That's kind of the illustration of how he talks about the way this works out in real time. So just for context, uh, in Jesus' day, a woman had almost no legal authority whatsoever in this patriarchal society. And so a husband would often appoint a Jewish legal expert, usually a Pharisee, to be the executor of his wife's estate once he passed. So now this person who is the executor, he has total control over the wife's assets and finances. You can just imagine how, how easy it would be to abuse this position, um, coming up with all kinds of like things that would deprive this wife of what was actually rightfully hers through legal loopholes, all kinds of different policies maybe she didn't know about or had no ability to defend herself against. This is, this is what the Pharisees were doing, all under the guise of, hey, I'm just being the executor as the law requires of me, but ripping off these widows in their place of total devastation. 
But you see, Jesus' point here, while also condemning this despicable practice, is to say that there's a way of obeying the peripheral matters of the law. You're obeying the fine print, right? You're cleaning the outside of the cup while neglecting the true heart of the law entirely, which is what we spent a lot more detail looking at last week. And there's a way in which we can use religion to mask the truer selfish intents of our hearts. Or maybe even just like delude ourselves into believing that the good we do somehow cancels out the bad. Like, yeah, I know this, maybe this isn't the best, but look at all the good I'm doing. Look at how much I gave in my tithe, showing up at church every Sunday. I think, I think we kind of balance each other out. Whatever way we do this, which means if we want to avoid being self-deceived in our own hypocrisy, we always need to be willing to consider our motives. To honestly be able to look in our heart and say, why am I doing this? What's going on? And then maybe even especially so, ask others to help us discern our motivations. I am like so encouraged every time when someone's like, hey, can you just process this with me? I can't really discern my heart and what's going on here. 100% yes. Such a wise thing to like press in and say, help me discern my motives so I can really see if I'm doing this right. Because the true thing is that to discern our true motivations, we need to do this because we can actually dull the sensitivity of our consciences over time by repeatedly acting in ways that appear righteous, appear selfless on the outside, but are actually only about serving ourselves. It's such a deadly, deadly poison to ingest and to take repeatedly because here's the thing. I think initially, hypocrisy like this is absolutely a conscious act. We know we're doing it, however we justify it to ourselves. We know it's happening, but when you persist in that action over time, eventually, here's the scary part, at the end of the day, it starts to become the case that you're no longer consciously choosing anymore. It just becomes how you are and how you act. See what I mean about the image now it becomes indiscernible from the truth thing anymore. So that's the first thing we see and we can draw from Jesus' illustration about the cup and the dish. Second thing we can draw is what he says in verse 26 about how to address it, like what to do about the problem. Again, he says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Which doesn't really sound right, I know, it sounds wrong. <laughs> I'm sure I can hear people right now being like, clearly Jesus has never washed a dish before. Not exactly how it works, Jesus. Um thing to understand is, no, Jesus is not presenting us with uh, dishwashing technique. What he is actually critiquing here is an approach to following God that's all about trying to work from the outside in rather than the inside out. Super important thing to understand about like how true faith is, is created and also is worked out in our lives. Not outside in, but an inside out reality. It's something you actually see a spiritual reality all through God's word. Um, but demonstrated, for instance, in places like Psalm 51. Maybe you know this. It's a well-known psalm from David, which he wrote right after he'd been outed by the prophet Nathan for his adultery with Bathsheba. But listen to what he says here specifically about his repentance for his sin in verse 6. He says to God, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Following this in verse 16 and 17 with, For you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see it? He 
see how David is, is contrasting external, outside-in religion with the true affections of the heart, righteousness on the inside of the cup? It's different, right? David doesn't say, God, your desire was for me to tell the truth, and I didn't. He says, God, your desire is that truth would be on the inner parts of me, on the inside, right? Not at all saying that God doesn't want him to tell the truth. He does. But what David knows is that when truth characterizes who I am on the inside, truth is what's going to flow out of me as well. He gets that it's an inside-out thing, not an outside-in. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus had said much the same thing when he was being critiqued by the Pharisees for the way that him and his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Uh, Jesus had taught his disciples there. He says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. Eating with unwashed hands, this kind of outside-in ceremonial cleanness, does, does not defile them. It's not the point, says Jesus. The problem with the Pharisees, and which we need to guard ourselves against as well today in order to not be self-deceived in our hypocrisy, is this approach to God that seeks to bring about an inner spiritual reality through external means. That's what we need to guard ourselves against, I think, and what Jesus is highlighting here. This idea that if I can just obey the rules well enough, jump through the right hoops, go to enough small group meetings and learn enough verses, then I'll be pure on the inside. Jesus is saying here the, actually the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite. So the danger of it is by trying to do the outside in, we look really good on the outside. We look super spiritual. We sound great. But the reality is that the stain on the inside of the cup is something that only Jesus' saving work on our behalf can actually remove. And as Jesus is teaching here, when he does that, when he removes the stain on the inside, then that creates a heart-level righteousness from which our obedience can then truly flow. Clean the inside of the cup first, and then the outside will also be clean. Okay, that's the construct of hypocrisy. Again, a mask built up over time that frighteningly comes by being obedient to God's law, but doing it for the wrong reasons, doing it to be seen, doing it to earn our acceptance with God rather than our obedience being on the basis of our acceptance. The problem is with that, it hides the true nature of our hearts and eventually so even hides it from ourselves. We can't even see what's true on the inside. Last thing I want to look at together with you is what Really what Jesus reveals in all these woes about why it is that our hypocrisy matters so much to God. Why it's such a big deal. So we'll look lastly at the consequence of hypocrisy. What's the consequence of this? And where you see this is in verse 27 and 28 of our passage. Look here. Again, Jesus describes the Pharisees' hypocrisy as being like whitewashed tombs. He says, you are like whitewashed tombs. Now, even if you get the metaphor... As we've likely all seen uh, tombs and caskets and mausoleums, which appear really beautiful, super ornate, beautiful on the outside, even if what's inside them is clearly not. But what we might stall at is when it comes to understanding what this thing about whitewashed tombs is all about. What's, what's that? Well, scholars tell us that in Jesus' day, and particularly about a month before the Passover in Jerusalem, 
grave sites on the way into Jerusalem would be marked with a kind of white lime solution that would clearly identify graves and grave sites that weren't otherwise identifiable as such. Uh, the reality is that in Jesus' day, everyone was not buried in cemeteries like they are today. People could be buried in all kinds of different places, which maybe doesn't seem like the biggest deal to us, but to a devout Jew on the way to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, this could prove to be a devastatingly mistaken encounter. Something that uh, Craig Keener helps us understand. He kind of contrasts what we looked at last week where Jesus was critiquing the Pharisees the way they strain a gnat out of their wine but were swallowing the camel. He says, although dead creatures in a beverage did produce impurity, corpse uncleanness was much more severe, extending for seven days, as taught in places like Numbers 19. Adding this, if so much as one shadow touched a corpse or a tomb, they would contract this impurity. So now seven days is a process before you can be clean again. So obviously, this could be a celebration-ending kind of encounter that people making the long, expensive yearly trip to Jerusalem, they wanted to avoid by any means possible. Hence, whitewashing of the tombs. Great. But what Keener goes on to say about Jesus' use of this metaphor is, I think, particularly telling. Noting that for Matthew, in Matthew's telling of these seven woes, Rather than focusing so much on this practice of whitewashing as helping others avoid ceremonial uncleanness, his focus is instead, he says, on whitewash as, quote, a beautifying agent that covers a tomb's corruption. It's a beautifying agent on the outside that covers up the fact that what's on the inside is actually corrupt. which, according to Keener, is basically Jesus pointing back to a condemnation that God had given of the false teachers back in Ezekiel 13, where God says this to them. He condemns them because they lead my people astray, saying, peace where there is no peace, and because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. So it's a beautifying agent that covers uncleanness Within, which is exactly what we already saw last week. Jesus accused the religious rulers of being blind guides because they were releasing people from fulfilling vows to God on the basis of their religious traditions that God had not released them from. But now here, Jesus tells the religious rulers that in whitewashing over the true nature of their hearts with this dead religion, they were defiling people who looked to them for instruction in God's ways in the same way that coming in contact with a gravesite would. It's the same condemnation in both, an accusation very much in line with what Jesus had said back in the second woe to the Pharisees in verse 15. He talked about how you travel over land and sea to create a single comfort, and in so doing, making them twice as much a child of hell as you are yourselves. Condemnation comes from coming into contact with these people who were zealous for the law. Isn't that incredible? As D.A. Carson rightly summarized, he said it was the most supreme of ironies as those most preoccupied with the law were the ones steeped in lawlessness. But as we think about our own part in all of this and potential for Jesus to speak these very same woes over the church today, we need to ask ourselves if we aren't in danger of leading people into this very same kind of defilement as the religious rulers of Jesus' day were. By which I mean... Leading those looking to us to see what kingdom life is supposed to look like in a direction that's actually further away from God rather than closer to Him. 
We do that. We can do that, I think, by prioritizing the practice of religion. The, the outside-in stuff, right? Dress this way, speak this way, read this, not that, go here, not there. That, that's the most important thing we tell people over developing and growing in a deepening relationship with God himself. What God says over and over again is through his word. That's what I actually desire from you. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your Bible memory. I, I want to have a relationship with you. That's what he's prioritizing. Which isn't at all to say that our obedience to God is irrelevant. Striving for holiness doesn't matter to God. It does. But as we live out our faith day to day as kingdom citizens, <coughs> seeking to demonstrate an alternative story to the one currently being lived out by those who are still outside the kingdom, I think we need to remind ourselves of that axiom that we talked about the very first Sunday of this series. It needs to be continually in our minds. Remember we said... Whatever you catch people with, you save them to. Whatever you catch people with, you save them to. I think we need to keep that axiom in front of us because what it does, it reminds us, allows us to rightly evaluate both our motives as well as our actions in any given moment and ask ourselves, as I do this, as I say this, am I saving people to religion or am I saving them to relationship? Now I can ask myself that question. Which one am I trying to save people to? An outside in or an inside out? It was the writer William Somerset Maugham who once wrote this. Hypocrisy is the most difficult and nerve-wracking vice that any man can pursue. It needs an unceasing vigilance and a rare detachment of spirit. It cannot, like adultery or gluttony, be practiced in spare moments. It is a whole-time job. And as both the targets of Jesus' woes, as well as, clearly, the purveyors of hypocrisy in Jesus' day, I want to return to the question I began with this morning as we close. When it comes to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, which they were no doubt guilty of, Jesus is calling out here, question I want us to ask and just consider for the moment is, were they self-consciously so? Did they know? Did they know that the image they were presenting of this like outer righteousness wasn't true? Or were they, through time, as a result of a million smaller, justifiable in the moment decisions, just self-deceived over time and could no longer see that who they believed they were was not who they truly were? Because if they were, if they were self-deceived by this point, and Jesus is pronouncing these woes over them, woe to you, teachers of the law, hypocrites, <clears throat> it makes me wonder, and yes, I, I'm, I'm basing this question on an imaginative reading of the text, the text doesn't say this, but it makes me wonder if when they heard these woes spoken over them, if it didn't actually awaken their hearts, even just to the smallest degree, kind of wake them up to a self-conscious awareness of their hypocrisy once again. They could see themselves for just a moment again as Jesus called them out in this way, in this really kind of severe mercy of revelation, to see the hypocrisy in themselves that Jesus so plainly saw. I wonder if that happened. It kind of feels like it must have, because at the end of this long discourse by Jesus, we read of the intentional planning of the chief priests and the elders of the law right at the beginning of chapter 26 to finally put Jesus to death. 
at the end of this long discourse, that's when they're like, this guy's done. We got we to gotta shut down this show now. So it seems like, yeah, it actually did awaken a self-consciousness of the hypocrisy. But sadly, for the religious rulers of Jesus' day, um, it was just too costly at this point in time to do anything about it. Too costly. Too much at stake to do anything. And therefore, rather than responding with repentance and humility to this severe mercy of revelation, instead, they defaulted to their protective response of, what, defensiveness? Hostility, just explaining away Jesus' words to them and or any responsibility to act on what he'd said. That's how they respond. And I know kind of this question of did they know, uh, did this awaken anything in them? It's, the question is ultimately unanswerable with 2,000 years of history between us. We can't really know. But while their opportunity to respond differently to Jesus' revealing work in their lives has now long passed... The good news is that ours still very much remains. We have an opportunity very much still today as living, breathing representatives of the kingdom to respond differently than they did. And if you sense the spirit moving in your heart today as we've been going through this, this idea of I'm presenting this image on the outside, inside I know isn't really what's true. If you hear the spirit calling you and to me out of self-deception, kind of waking you up, to see that the unconscious hypocrisy in you right now that's defiling both ourselves as well as those looking to us, if you see that, my prayer for each one of us today is that God, by his grace, would grant us the humility to see that as a good thing, moving us out of self-deception and into a place of self-conscious awareness of our hypocrisy, that we would actually see that as a good thing, which maybe you'd be like, how is that a good thing again? Just seeing that I'm a hypocrite, how, how's that helpful? I, I don't, I don't want to just see that I'm a hypocrite. I want to do something about it. I want to stop it. Great. Let's, let's take it in stages here. Because remember what, how Jesus responded to the Pharisees' hypocritical exclusion of people elsewhere. What did he say? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Which I've repeatedly reminded you was not in any way Jesus saying, Religious rulers, they're righteous, so they don't need my saving word. Not at all. Only they had no self-conscious awareness of their sin, and as a result, couldn't repent, wouldn't turn away. They could only respond with defensiveness and by feeling offended. But for those of us who have this work of the Spirit doing that work of waking us up to see what maybe we've been self-deceived by, now those who know we need a doctor those who've gained or maybe regained a self-awareness of their hypocrisy and our need for Jesus to change them, that's actually the mercy of God to us. However difficult I know it can be to receive in the moment, it is hard. Why? Because now, with a self-awareness of the problem restored, you're at least in a place where now you're finally able to at least make a conscious choice again about whether you'll respond to it or not. That's where this awakening work is such a blessing. It wakes us up to now be able to choose again. Before, you weren't choosing. You were just living out this reality. You've lived so long in the curated version, you don't even recognize it anymore. So the awakening is actually a good thing. And then the prayer is, as we come to that place of self-awareness, man, I'm, I'm totally not living in accordance with who I'm presenting to people. Now, the prayer is, God, help me to respond like as you would have me, not with defensiveness, but with determination to do something about this. 
Help me to respond uh, instead with, with repentance rather than continued rebellion. Now we can actually do something about it because it's no longer unconscious. It's a self-conscious awareness that's being revealed, and it's actually God's gift to us. So as has been our pattern, I want to take some time to just sit in silence together, to ask the Spirit to speak to us individually and corporately together as God's people about what He wants to reveal in our hearts. And my prayer for us, as the writer of Hebrews says so plainly, if you hear His voice today, don't harden your heart. It's a gift to you to reveal these things to you. Would you receive that gift and respond by faith that he's going to empower you to do what he shows you? So let's go together to him and seek him, and then we'll take some time to take the Lord's Supper.